continuous computing. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Thank you for tuning in to Doth Protest Too Much. Um, we have a special episode today, uh, remembering the late Reverend Dr. James Nestingen, um, a Luther scholar, a church historian, who went to be with our Lord on January 1st, just several days ago, uh, the same day as the death of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, um, or or also known as theologian Joseph Ratzinger. So it was a, a rare day to lose um, two, I want to say, high-profile theologians. One definitely was high-profile, being a, a, po a former pope. But um, within uh, especially American Lutheranism, but within Luther scholarship, James Nessingen is, um, is, was a leading authority and just really a great guy that, um, and we have uh, as our guest with us today, James and I are here. Charlie may be here at some point. And we have uh, Reverend Kyle Tomlin, who's been on this show before. Uh, he did the episode on comic books uh, for our listeners. If you haven't listened, it's a several episodes back. Uh, we did it in like November. Uh, but additionally to being, um, to having a podcast on God, well, I guess we'll have to catch up a little bit on that. I don't the the podcast on comic books and God or God and comics, as it was called, is on hiatus or is it? Uh, it is a defunct. Defunct. It, it is. A, it is done now. Okay. Yeah. Well, I am. I'm sure our listeners, if they haven't tuned in, there's a whole back catalog you'll still have yeah. up. Absolutely. Yep. Everything will be back. Everything will be up for now. Our website will be going away, but. But you can still find all our episodes on Anchor and other sources. Well, uh, I'm sure it, it served a, a you know, a, during its time and duration, it is, uh, from what I understand, it, it was kind of outreach in a way. You were able to reach uh, a lot of people with the message of Christ that you may not, that they may not have otherwise um, received that. So, yeah. Yeah. For so uh, well done, faithful servant for that. Oh, and, thank you. <laughs> and so, uh, but yes, doth protest. Um, you know, uh, we're we're here uh, today, and uh, Kyle is not. In addition to being into comic books and its intersection with theology, uh, Kyle studied under James Nestingen. And tell us, like, what was um, uh, what was that? Did, how what? How did you, what capacity were you, did you study under him? What was your relationship with him? Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me back. Glad to be back with you guys and looking yeah. forward to our talk. Um, I, I actually uh, knew uh, Jim for about 11 years. Um, I met him around, I think it was around 2011 through a mutual friend. I met him in person in 2011 through a mutual friend, the Reverend Matt McCormick, who was is an Episcopal priest in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Um, Matt had actually come to know him um, through Paul Zoll, who we both studied under at Trinity Episcopal School for Ministry. So at one point in time, um, uh, Paul Zoll had recommended that Matt go out to a Lutheran retreat camp to meet a bunch of people that he knew. And amongst those was Jim Nestigan. And so in seminary, I got my first 
introduction to Jim uh, through a sermon that he preached on the woman caught in adultery. And it was one of the best sermons that I had ever heard. It, it um, brought you to a place where you recognized that you were the woman caught in adultery mm. and that Christ was pronouncing forgiveness for you. And uh, such a powerful sermon. But, um, but I ended up meeting uh, Jim in 2011 at Mere Anglicanism. Um, he was there with uh, Stephen Paulson. So, um, so I met the two of them at that time. I got to spend some time with them and and uh, enjoy, you know, godly fellowship with them and get to know them. And I ended up a couple of years later taking a pastoral care class with Jim through um, St. Paul's Lutheran Seminary, which is a primarily online seminary that's connected to the LCMC, the Lutheran Churches and Mission for Christ. And uh, from that, I was asked to ask if I would like to participate in the uh, D-Men program that St. Paul's was starting. And the D-Men program was going to be totally under uh, gymnastics. So he was going to be teaching the whole cl- whole series of classes and we would write our thesis for him. And um, basically it was an opportunity to spend three years with Jim um, and just soak in uh the gospel and have an opportunity to learn Lutheran theology. Um, so I did my three years with him and have been working slowly on my thesis and um, hoping that I'll get that finished at some point in time. But um, that's really how I've come to know him. And uh, yeah. Yeah. That's cool that it was under, I didn't know that, that it was uh, actually in a demon program. Um and that Jim, it doesn't surprise me that Jim taught those types of courses, though. Um, for our listeners, uh, well, we'll get into it. I haven't read a whole lot of like the books as far as Jim Nessigan is um, concerned, but um, I've listened to just lots of him interviews and discussions with him, and he's a deeply pastoral person. Oh, yeah. Um, and he's a very down to earth person. Um, for our you know, when this past Sunday, um, during the prayers of the people, uh, during, um, uh, the, you know, the, during the, during the prayers, uh, I, I, I added in both him and, and the late Pope Benedict, uh, uh, giving thanks for their ministry and witness. Um, and, um, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of the parishioners obviously knew who one of those guys was, but maybe not Jim Nestingham, but, I think a lot of people, if they don't know who Nessigan was, definitely came across him in the PBS uh, documentary they did on Luther. It was a 2017, so it was like the 500th anniversary. They did this like, it was kind of a docudrama because they had like an actor playing Luther and they kind of cut back and forth between the reenactments of Luther's life career. And um, they had like scholars on from different Lutheran institutions and Luther experts. And and I think Jim Ness. And so if anyone's seen that, you know who Jim Neskin is because he was featured on there. And I noticed like in contrast to a lot of the people on there, um, he was just like he didn't look rehearsed or anything. It just naturally came out of him in the in the little, you know, the the clips in that documentary where he's talking about luther like it's just he lived and breathed uh this stuff it was his passion and uh he was just so like down to earth and um 
you know, it, it was this, he was just very raw and very, um, he's the type of person like, uh, I would be comfortable just like going to and opening up to about things. And so, um, you know, it, I, I was, um, in preparation for this episode, I found myself listening to a lot of, um, the thinking fellows podcast, which, which is a really good podcast that I don't listen to nearly enough. Um, yeah, it is. It really is good. And I didn't realize how many episodes, I mean, this is back in, in some of these episodes were like three or four years ago. I didn't realize how many episodes he was on. And, mm -hmm. uh, but in one of the episodes, I remember him saying that, um, he saw his prof professorship, his, uh, academic role as, as being evangelistic. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that is a way of teaching and pedagogy is, is definitely a way of doing evangelism. I can relate a lot to that. And I'll get more into this later, but as someone who taught Christian education for I mean, several years and at two different uh, religious schools, I could relate a lot to that. So uh, I recommend our listeners, you had to check out, I'll put in the show notes, the episode, the, the episodes that I, I listened to that he was on. One was in a bar, uh, which was, and, and they were, and they were like talking a little bit about like what they were drinking at the bar in addition to Luther and church stuff. And it was just like, he was just that kind of guy, just that down to earth type of guy that you could like, you know, have those types of conversations, just real conversations. Yeah, absolutely. One other thing in, in a similar vein connected to 1517, um, if folks want to check out the around the table conversation videos between Jim Nestigan and Rod Rosenblatt. Those are just a fantastic, fantastic way to get to know Jim, to see his, see who he was as a, as a pastor or theologian. But, um, but you also get the added bonus of getting to see Rod Rosenblatt and the two of them uh, interact with one another. So yeah, maybe putting those in the show notes too. Yeah. The around the table. Uh, yeah. I haven't listened to those, but I definitely am interested now. Um, yeah, so, well, it, while we're on the topic of the teaching part, um, this was in another thinking, it might've been the same, I think it was the same episode where he was at the bar and it was like, it, it was like some church conference when it was like they had him and a few others on time outside of the conference got together and just like recorded this episode in a bar. So, um, and they were, he was, uh, they were talking about, um, or Justin Nesting was kind of reflecting on his time being a professor and a teacher. And, um, you know, he said some kind of insightful things about pedagogy, how, uh, with teaching, like if, you know, first off, he said, I don't want to spoil it because I want listeners to listen to it, but he said like, um, you know, he, he liked to go, he liked to not have a lot of structure. Um, and with with his classes because he felt just the material was so interesting in itself and he really firmly believed in like just placing like the material in the hands of the students and having them like honestly engage with it and um you know and for them to kind of come into their own he said like a good teacher's goal is to make their student independent of the teacher um, and he said it, it's not like a paint by numbers, which so, so, so much, you know, um, of the education system, uh, tends to kind of go in that, 
direction, right? Um, just to, um, you know, put so much scaffolding there and just have like students fill in the blank. But he want it, he didn't want that kind of approach. He just wanted he wanted uh, the students to really, I guess, have the joy of like exploration and discovery um, of of the material, right? Um, so yeah. I thought that was that was really cool. I don't know if you experienced that as being his student or what some of the um, what kind of coursework you did under him. Yeah, that that is very much the style of classes that I had with him. Uh, generally speaking, what we would do in all the classes that that I had and I took. Um, so there were three years, six semesters worth of courses for the DMIN program. And um, basically, we would get a book. We would be assigned a book, usually something by Luther. We spent one whole semester with Luther's Letters of Spiritual Counsel in the um, Library of Christian Classics, uh, which is a fantastic book, just Luther's Pastoral Letters to People. We spent a semester on that. We spent a semester with his um, commentary on the Galatians. Um, we spent a semester on on several volumes of his uh, his commentary on the Psalms and um, and one on Albrecht Pater's uh, uh, commentary on on the Cat Luther's Catechism on the Ten Commandments section. And so Jim would have us read, and we would be responsible for reading fairly large swaths of that material, and then he would pretty much lecture. A little bit on some things that he thought were of value and importance and then we would have time for discussion and interaction around the material and you know left it up to us to kind of make some sense of the material and and figure out how it fit within the context of ministry and um, because we were all pastors people who've been in ministry for several years now it was an opportunity for us to do that reflecting on our own experiences thus far and things that we might have been dealing with at that particular time. So yeah, that rings very true to the style that he had. And um, it was very, very down to earth. Mm -hmm. um, not, not uh, you know, eggheaded high in the clouds stuff, but, but yet deep. I mean, it was still, still stuff that you had to think about. Right. Right. Um. So what, I mean, what a like tremendous, like blessing it was to, to have studied under, under him, I imagine. Um, so, and, uh, like I mentioned before, I, uh, I'm like, I've known the name of Jim Nesselman for the last several years. Um, and, uh, for our listeners, I was, you know, we were chatting a little bit before we hit record on this episode. Um, I've I've come across them in in so many like mediums of like interviews, uh, audio recordings of interviews, audio recordings of discussions he's been in. Um, I've read two books where he wrote the foreword to one of them being Ferdy's um, Captivation of the Will. Um, mm -hmm. And him and Ferdy, of course, had a had a close relationship and had were of similar mm -hmm. mind, kind of over that same generation of theologians. Um, but I just haven't really, I've never read a book authored by him. And so I'm excited in this episode to hear both from you, Kyle, and from James about some of your favorite books, uh, things from those books, why you appreciated them. Um, 
And so I don't, James, why don't, uh, what was, um, I guess, give us, give us, you know, your take on that. What, what did you like about, about his writings? I know you read a lot of his books. Well, so, um, let's got, let's not give me too much credit. I've read his short biography of Luther. Um, it's like a little over a hundred pages and, um, it's an outstanding biography. Um, he did a, a very good job of sort of shortening what um, others have done. People like Roland Bainton and um, I don't remember Kittleson's first name, but um, James, James Kittleson, I think. Well, I should be able to remember that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, James Kittleson wrote a lot of 280, 300 page biography of Luther, which also is outstanding. But what, uh, what Jim Nestigan was able to do was to condense that into a shorter book to give you, you know, hitting, hitting the highlights, basically. Um, he's very easy to read, which is a really hard balance to strike with academics. Mm-hmm. When you have PhD behind your name, the tendency is to want to flaunt it and to show that you're, you know, good at what you do and that you can write in such a way that people can't understand you. I'm thinking of people like Rowan Williams and John Milbank <laughs> and, you know, uh, others um, who are in our Anglican stream, but um, Nestigan didn't do that. Um, and it's what you've already said several times, which is that his focus was deeply pastoral. Um I think of Jim Nestigan for Lutheranism a lot like what I think about Jim Packer for Anglicanism, Mm -hmm. because both of them had strong academic chops, but both of them also were very clearly focused on pastoral ministry, on teaching people the faith. I mean, most of Nestigan's work that I've seen has been on the main catechetical tool that's used in Lutheranism, the small catechism, right? And and the same way, Jim Packer was instrumental in putting together the Anglican catechism for the new, or for for the ACNA to be a Christian. He was one of the main two drafters for that. Um, Incidentally, the class that I'm taking uh, at Trinity School for Ministry is with the other drafter for that, uh, to be a Christian, Joel Scandrett. Um, but I digress. So the, the point is that it's a wonderful thing when you can make profound statements without stumping people with your two bit vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. Jim Estigan is one of the only people that I've seen, obviously Jim Packer being another, where he was able to strike that balance and do it well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So much of that has to do with um, with something that I believe his wife was the author of the obituary, something that his wife wrote in his obituary, which um, rings true. It, and I'll say it's two things, really. Um, one is that that Jim comes from a line of pastors. So his father, Joyce, was a pastor in the Lutheran Church. His brother, Rolf, is a pastor. Um, his father-in-law is also a pastor. So um, so he's got a deep pastoral sense because he was grounded in, in a family of pastors, right? They lived and breathed this stuff. They, he wasn't from a family of academics. 
but but theologians who are down on the ground, as it were. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that Jim came from a um, from a culture of storytelling, um, where where he was raised in Minnesota and um, you know the, the upper Midwest. There, um, storytelling was such a part of that life. Mm-hmm. And that was the main means of communication, right? You told stories. That's how you got across your points. And that rolled itself over into the way that Jim approached writing and teaching is you told stories. Mm-hmm. So if you watch him, you know, on things like Around the Table or you listen to the the um, Thinking Fellows podcast where he's talking, you see one of the things that he's always doing is just telling stories, about experiences he's had and situations he's encountered. And um, he loved to tell stories about Luther because that's what he did. He read Luther religiously, um, pardon the expression, I guess, but he uh, he read Luther that way and, and absorbed Luther. And I think he saw some, some similarity between himself and Luther a lot of times, the way that, that Jim would talk. Um, I think he felt a deep connection to Luther and saw a storyteller in Luther. And uh, and so that became, you know, the means of, of him writing and teaching. And, and James, I think that's the thing that you're definitely seeing in, in his book, Luther, A Life, which is the one that you said you read. Um, I know he also has the book, uh, Martin Luther, His Life and Teachings, which is in a similar vein, but um, maybe a little bit more focused on the teachings than just the life itself. Um, I would say personally, uh, he, he has a number of books, maybe about five or six books. The first book that he wrote was uh, Free to Be. And that's a book that he co-authored with Gerhard Ferdy. And the idea when they wrote that book together, and it had two, two versions. There was an early version, and then there was one that got edited just a little bit later on. I've read the, the latter version, not the early version. Um, I used to have like 10 copies of it and slowly they've all gone out of my office. I think I'm down to two now, mm-hmm. but, um, but that to me is one of his, his, um, crowning moments as an author. What they sought to do with that book was to find a way to communicate Luther's small catechism to, uh, teenagers. And so they write that book in such a way that, that teenagers can grasp these deep Lutheran concepts. Granted, it's published in the 1970s and it's got a lot of 1970s pictures in it. And, um, you know, it, it just has a, a 1970s style to it, but, um, but it's still relevant today. It's still such a solid book. So I commend that book to both of you. I think that that is a, that's a book I've gone back to again and again. I've read multiple times. Um, just as a good way to ground oneself in, in the basics of the Christian faith. I've used it in uh, my first parish in particular to teach a um, catechism course. I uh, used it for adults for that. And I've used it here at my current parish for um, youth ministry stuff for teenagers. And everywhere that I've used that book, it's just rung a bell. People because of the storytelling abilities and the ability to be down to earth, people have connected with it. Yeah. And um, I actually found a, I'm going to share in a, in, a, in a little while, but I, I, I did find a good quote from, I've never read the book. 
Um, I found a good quote from it, though. I, I shared it on Facebook that the day um, on Saturday, on New Year's Eve, the day he died. And um, and, and I'll read it in a little while. I, I, while you mentioned, um, uh, Kyle, you mentioned uh, it was before it was before you started talking about uh, free to be. Um, and I just forgot what it was, but maybe if it comes to mind, I'll come back to it. So I'll go ahead and I'll share okay. the quote uh, from Free to Be that uh, that I did post. Um, and this is like you, I would like. I'm gonna pull it up. I could like see this. I could picture this like being published in any like this. It's not like a specifically like uh, doesn't have a specific Lutheran. Flavor, even though it very, you could very much argue this this hits home of where Luther was at, but it's, it's really just any Christian could um, find um, comfort in this. I'll go ahead and read it. it. Says God has made a decision about you. God has not waited to find out how sincere you are, how devout or religious you might be, or how well you understand the Bible and the Catechism. God hasn't even waited to find out if you are interested or willing to take this decision seriously. God has simply decided. God made this decision knowing full well the kind of person you are. God knows you better than anyone else could, inside out, upside down and backwards. God knows where you are strong and where you are weak, what you are most proud of and what you would most like to hide. Be that as it may, God's decision is made. God comes out straight straight out with it and says, I am the Lord your God. This is the decision. God has decided to be your God. Well, God wants to be as close to you as your next breath. Be the one who gives you confidence and value to open a future to you in the freedom of the word. God wants to be the one to whom you turn for whatever you need. Um, i on Goodreads um, and uh, share it on Facebook. So, um, but yeah, I think that's very... Um, that's very much, uh, is, as any Christian could see that and read that and, and, um, like it, it's also hits home. Like I said, with what Luther was about, which was about, um, God is God giving himself to you for you, right? The gospel being a promise of God giving himself to you. And, um, it, tasting, you know, tasting mortality, taking on flesh, um, you know, suffering and dying. Um, that we have a God who is intimately and personally so interested in you and me enough to go to any length in order to secure, you know, that, I mean, I don't want to relationship, whatever, just that this just to draw us to him to him um i really enjoyed that and um yeah yeah beautiful quote and i think it really does get to the heart of the way that jim approached things too i mean if there's two things that i think were were really the heart and soul of what jim taught and and the approach that he had to ministry it was this that people are connecting all the time and we need to have ears to hear it as you know, just the simple comments that people make as they're sharing their life and, and 
talking about things that worry them and, and trouble them, people are really confessing. Mm -hmm. um, and the second thing that goes with that is that Jim was all about doing what he called handing over the goods, mm -hmm. that it was all about bringing people to the place, having heard their confession of hearing the gospel and having the gospel proclaimed as a message for you um, in all its in all its fullness. Um, I'm reminded, and, and I'm not as good a storyteller as Jim, so I'll, I won't do this as, as great a justice as, you know, no doubt he would have. Mm -hmm. But one of the stories that I absolutely love that he told before and that I've heard since in multiple other places is a time that he was on an airplane. And Jim was a big guy. He was probably like six, five, six, six, something like that. I mean, tall guy, uh, big beer belly, you know, big guy. Um, he got on a plane and he sat down next to another guy who was of similar stature as him. And um, the guy asked Jim, you know, what do you do for a living? And Jim said, well, I'm, I'm a preacher of the gospel. And the guy said, well, that's good. He's like, but, you know, I don't believe all that stuff. I don't have any faith. And so over the course of their flight, they just continued. Jim said, that's OK. And over the course of their flight, they just continued talking. And apparently the guy was just telling his life and sharing himself with Jim. And as the as the flight was getting closer to ending, Jim said, OK, so now for the last couple of hours, you've been confessing to me. And he said, I've heard your confession. He said, do you have anything else you want to throw on the pile? And the guy said, what? He's like, I wasn't I wasn't confessing. And Jim's like, you certainly were. And um, and he said, you know, if you've got some more, the good Lord can take it. You want to keep it on? And um, and so Jim unbuckled his seatbelt. The planes going unbuckled his seatbelt, stood up, big guy, little plane laid his hands on the guy's head. And Jim said, now that I've heard your confession, I'm going to give you an absolution because I've been called by Christ to do that for you. And the guy said, well, he's like, you know, I told you I don't have any faith. And he said, I don't have any faith in me. That's what the guy said. I don't have any faith in me. And Jim said, well, that's OK, because the Lord Jesus Christ said that whatever's in you is what the problem is with the world. So he said, so I'm going to just speak the words of absolution and put his hands on the guy's head and said, as a called and ordained minister in the name of Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. And the guy just broke down, just wept. And um, and they left together and uh, they exchanged numbers. And, and the guy would call Jim periodically to dump his stuff and to hear the word of absolution again. Mm -hmm. That was that was Jim's ministry. Right. The proclamation of the forgiveness of sins, recognizing that people are so burdened and weighted down with the law that that, you know, they're just dying, literally, um, spiritually to confess, you know. And um, that reminded me of a, of a theme that seemed to come up with a lot of these discussions I was listening to that Nesniga was involved with that, um, that, that, um, not all, that, that faith, that absolution, um, comes from completely outside of yourself. I mean, that goes right into what 
you were saying that Jim was saying, um, you know, that, that he said, uh, you know, as Christ said, whatever is in you is no good. It, it, it's the absolution comes from, it's completely, you know, alien, so to speak, uh, coming from outside of yourself. And so much of, uh, so much of Christianity, popular Christianity, popular religion, um, especially you see it in American evangelicalism, but I've seen it in other places too, um, is about, you know, making sure you have faith. It, it, it's um, people wondering if their faith is authentic, people wondering, um, you know, searching their heart to see if they really do have faith um, as if it depended on them. Right? Mm -hmm. And it, as if it depended on something that could either muster up or, you know, if if they're trusting enough. And um, so much there's so much comfort with realizing it's something that is completely external to you. And then, like you, you look at the example of the airplane, this guy sitting in the see he was it seemed like he was just, he was reluctant to the very end. You know, Jim mm -hmm. announces the absolution, pronounces the forgiveness to him, and the guy breaks down and, and weeps. That's how the gospel reaches uh, people, right? He didn't yeah. say, well, I think, you know, now that we've had this two-hour conversation on this flight, I think, you know, you, you've won me over a little bit. You've warmed me up to this idea of, uh, of you know, Christianity or whatever. So now I accept. Now I now I accept Jesus as my Savior. It didn't work like that, right? He was reluctant to the very end. He's probably weirded out, especially when, I, I don't know, I'm just putting myself in that guy's shoes, you know. I would be weirded out if a guy stood up in an airplane and pronounced that. Right. <laughs> but um, nevertheless, Jim did it. And then like it, it was the effect of that. I mean, it was the effect of that absolution. The guy broke down in tears and his life was changed. Right. Yep. It was not a decision he made at all. Yeah. It was completely the work of the Holy Spirit, which is how faith works. Um, that's right. The gospel creates faith. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly I think he actually said that to the guy, too, that that you don't need to worry about that, that the Lord will do the job of creating the faith. And that's exactly what happened, right? That that word of absolution created the faith in that man. And that's why he kept coming back, calling him to to dump his sins when he felt the need to from there on out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think sometimes you're right, Drew, that I think sometimes we talk about faith as a thing we have and that we can apply however we choose to apply it. But Faith is not something, well, certainly not faith in Christ. Faith in God is not something we have. It's something given. It's a gift. And that that even goes to the heart of the quote that you read, mm -hmm. um, that God is the one who decided for us, not we for him. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's very clear that Jim understood that faith is not a work. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's what you're saying, Kyle, is that faith is not something that we have. It's not even ultimately a human response to divine action, which is what we tend to think of it as. Because mm -hmm. just like I was telling the um, the women's ministry this morning, uh, I, roughly every other Thursday, either my my boss or I will preach at that meeting. We'll lead morning prayer and preach. And one of the things I was saying this morning 
um, because the morning prayer lesson was, uh, I am the vine, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. I said, the law is going to lead us in one of two directions, that we're either going to despair of ourselves and despair of our ability, or we're going to become self-righteous. I don't have enough works is the despair, and uh, I'm perfectly good, and that's the self-righteousness. In the same way, when we talk about faith as if it is a work, ultimately we get, we come to a place of despair because I've heard, I can't tell you how many times people say, I don't know that I have enough faith. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I have uh, enough faith to to not commit the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or something. Yeah. I usually tell them, like, if you're actually worried about it, I think you're okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's but, great thing. But, but, uh, but when we treat it as a work, then either we become self-righteous and become, you know, some Christian guru like Joel Osteen or, you know, somebody else like him, um, who also has a lot of money and totally sue me for libel, but, but, or slander rather. Um, uh, sue me first. I've said more things negative about him probably in a audio recording than you have here <laughs> fair enough fair enough i don't think i've ever brought up olstein on any on any show surprisingly but um we should do an episode about him on prosperity god well and he's he's actually kind of a mild believe it or not i would make the case he's actually a milder version of prosperity gospel but it, it's more right. so it's just kind of it's just kind of it's more so that he's just mushy um motivational oh, yeah. inspirational talk with kind of a christian guy right yeah <laughs> so. but ultimately the point although that's a delicious rabbit hole to go down the the yeah, point is true. that faith is not a work faith is something that is extra nose that is given to us and it's something that we simply receive i mean that's that's what luther was talking about that we are we are receivers. I mean, his last words were, were uh, we're, we're beggars, right? I mean, we have nothing. Our hands are empty and even empty of our faith. And so there is obviously that comfort there when Jim says, God has made a decision about you, that it's a counter to that belief that we need to make a decision for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I, I, if we, if, go ahead. No, no, James, go ahead. I, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I, I mean, I, I was just going to finish by saying that <clears throat> the idea that we need to make a decision for Jesus is desolating because, you know, you make a decision for Jesus. And then later that day, you flick somebody off or say a cuss word or do something else. And, and you know, I got to decide for Jesus again. Um, it reminded me, um, I was reflecting on that that a little while ago, like what exactly is like. Uh, the Christian life, right? Um, what exactly does it mean to, to, um, to have a faith journey and, um, how does this show in your life? You know, it, it how do you grow in the knowledge of that? I'm, I'm going to get to that in a second. There was a quote. I, um, this is going to, sh- this is a good opportunity for me to share the other quote that I was planning to share for the episode. Another one I posted on Facebook, uh, Mockingbird, who we talked about plenty on this podcast. Um, I found, uh, this is years ago, this is from 2008, um, Mockingbird had on their website some of uh, nesting sermons um, that were transcribed by uh, 
someone else. Uh, I can't see his name. I have it pulled up on my phone, but um, I'll put the link to this sermon um, in the show notes. But this this sermon uh, was on what scripture what reading was it? Uh, I don't know if it even has the reading it was on, but um, it's on the topic of faith versus piety. And I love this. It says, nesting and said in the sermon, you can always hear the difference between faith and piety in the verbs. Piety says, I did this, I'll do that. Faith says, he does this, he'll do that. He being Jesus. Piety says, you know, I've committed my life to Christ. Faith says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the difference. Um, and skipping down, he says, there's, Piety says, I will, I have, I, 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 I. Faith says, he has, and he will not let you down. Not ever, not ever, not ever. So having made this promise, Christ Jesus can only put it into force. And so this is what he says. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so on. He knows where we live, caught between ourselves on the one hand and him on the other. He knows the tension of our life. That we're getting that we're always getting absorbed into our own plans and projects and efforts and losing sight of him. And so when he assures us that we can pray, he says, just wait a minute. He puts our hands in his, holds them together in his, and says, When you pray, pray like this. Hmm. Um such a I mean, I almost like broke down in tears when I first yeah. <clears throat> read that. Um, but it just reminds me so much of um, you know. I think one of the most toxic things that religion has perpetuated since religion's been a thing is that, you know, it, what it means to be a Christian is, or what it means to grow in the knowledge and love of God becomes this. It becomes basically like you um, grow more and more and more in holiness. Um, and of course, it's working with a different idea of what holiness even is. For holiness, mm -hmm. for this mindset that I'm kind of referring to, is that as you grow more and more as a Christian, um, you'll be more and more like inner peace with yourself, almost like a Buddhist nirvana or something. Mm -hmm. so you'll reach this point in your spiritual ascent as you climb that spiritual mountain, if you, as you climb that spiritual ladder, that you're going to reach some place in your life where, you know, whatever is going on around you and outside of you and your immediate surrounding, if it, anything that is tr troubling or jarring or something, whatever, um, um, it will not break your peace, right? It will not, um, it will have no effect on you because you will become such a fully formed, fully Christian. Um, and the only way you will respond to those trials will be in acts of charity and love right that's the most toxic almost i want to say a swear we're the most toxic bull blank that um religion has perpetuated mm -hmm. and so much of what not just nesting in but ferdy you know in their reflections on luther's theology the cross you know and and know that christian spirituality is something very very different from that holiness is not a moral category holiness is what we are made by christ alone right. and it's like <clears throat> as opposed to piety faith um 
faith doesn't say, you know, all right, Jesus saved me, so now it's it's up for me to act right. No, faith says you never acted right to begin with, right? And you haven't acted right this whole entire time, and that's a problem, right? right. And that's brought, you know, a lot of pain onto you and others, and it's not good. You are in a bad situation. But Jesus has now taken that away from you. Mm-hmm. Period. That's all it is. So I think faith says, you know, well, how do you feel about that? Just mm-hmm. ponder that. That's right. all it is. And I think when you do ponder that, um, you do grow in the knowledge and love of God. And by virtue of that, you do grow in the in the love of your neighbor because you're not going to be looking at the specks in your neighbor's eye anymore because you know very well there's a log in your own. Yep. Right. Yeah. To to borrow um, to borrow something that Gerhard Ferdi said, uh, too many too many parts of Christianity today still hold to the latter theology, to use his terminology. Right. There's still something to be climbed still something to be achieved even after you've come to faith there's there's the next obstacle to get up that's the way that a lot of the approach to holiness goes that there's still something left for you to do um, but there's nothing left for you to do christ did it all and all means all right it's done to tell as christ said from the cross it's done um, and that changes everything uh you know, the, the question's no longer, as Ferdy said, the question's no longer, what do I have to do? Because that's still the question that so many Christians are left with, right? I've come to faith in Jesus, but what do I have to do now? The question's not, what do you have to do? The question, as Ferdy says, is, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. What do you want to do? Now that all's been done for you, now that you're loved unconditionally, you're forgiven all your sins. All has been put well and right. What do you want to do? And the answer inevitably is, well, I think I kind of want to love my neighbors. I think I want to love God, right? Um, and that grounds one in vocation, which is a big part of what um, what Jim Nestigan focused on. I know it's a large part of what Ferdy was getting at, that, that the Christian life is really a life lived in vocation, as uh, Gustav Wingren talked about in his book Luther on vocation it's it's about being put back into real life to simply love and serve your neighbor in your day-to-day vocations in the callings that God lays on you there's no more spiritual climbing there's no more need to achieve anything it is simply being free to be that's where Jim got the title we are free to be free to be human for the first time free to be what God made us remade us to be right what he's what he's put us back into life for and uh that that's a beautiful and freeing word mm-hmm. you can just breathe a sigh of relief off that and and feel at peace and um that's so much what i what i felt listening to jim all the time is that that deep sigh of relief about life that i don't need to keep climbing i don't need to keep striving mm-hmm. it's all good um Jesus has done it all, and I can just be now. I can live. Right. And, and how pastoral to, to just to carry that with you. And so when, and when people encounter you and talk to you, you know, it, it's 
contagious. It's that peace that passes all understanding that you you have because you know what Christ has done for you. You know. Yeah. Yeah, and there's no, you know, you're, you're absolutely right, Drew. And and in light of that, uh, evangelism just soaks out when you're that way. Yeah. You just you just can't help but but uh, talk about what good Jesus gives in light of that. You know. It's not an awe, and how many Christians like labor under this awe with evangelism when it's just really a joy. I, I have peace. I have real peace. I have lasting peace, and people can see it, and let's talk about that because I'll be happy to give anybody an absolution too uh, after, after hearing their confession. James, yeah. I hope you had something on your mind. Well, I just I'm I'm thinking about that, and I think it's I think it's absolutely true and beautiful. And um, I also have always in the back of my mind the bit in the bondage of the will where Luther talks about how often um, it's a competition for who's going to be in the saddle of your life, in effect, whether it's God or Satan. And frequently, uh, we choose Satan. So, in the context of reading all of the Lord of the Rings books right now, and also reading a book about uh, Tolkien's theology, it's made me think um, quite a bit about how high Tolkien's anthropology was. Um, in the end, I think he rectified it a bit, but uh, but it's all, I mean, everything about Tolkien's understanding of um, of hobbits and, and the world and everything was very virtue-based and focused on the cultivation of virtue as a part of and part and parcel to sanctification. <clears throat> and uh, I just, I don't, I don't think that that's quite right because our natural inclination, even as sanctified people who have been declared sanctified by God, my natural inclination is to get super pissed off at people who cut me off on the road or super pissed off when something happens that I don't want to. And as my boss likes to say, our natural inclination, even as people who have been redeemed by Christ, is to let our inner two-year-old run amok. Um, and so I think it's utterly important to liberally declare absolution for those who are in Christ. And I think it's also very important to um, have a low anthropology and realize that that absolution is not a one one and done deal for anybody. <laughs> it's going to be a life a life of having absolution declared over you because the moment you absolve, you're going to come back, you know, five minutes later with a phone call to Jim or any other pastor and be like, "Hey, boy, I really screwed up." Just like right after I got off the phone with you, or right after I left church, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the things in the. Um, I remember in the around the table talks. Um, one of the guys who was a, a pastor of a Lutheran church was talking about how a um, uh, an autistic child had come to the altar rail. And I don't know if the autistic child was baptized or hadn't gone through confirmation or whatever. And there was question in his mind about whether or not he was supposed to give communion to this this child. But the child stuck his hands out and said, give me Jesus. And the pastor said, in that moment, all I could do was give him Jesus, right? I, I put the host in his hand and, and said, this is the body of Christ given for you. And 
so they were discussing um, discussing that. And I remember Jim saying to the guy that uh, even if you made the mistake in that moment, he's like, just call me up. I'm happy to tell you again and again and again that you are forgiven. Right. Right. So, so I remember shifting gears a little bit. I did remember what I was going to say earlier. Um, you know, since we're, we're uh, in, we originally started out as really a, a history, his, you know, based podcast, but we're, you know, um, but so, but when it comes to history, uh, of course, Jim Nestigan was a church historian. That was his, his um, mm-hmm. specialty. It's what he taught um, at, at uh, Luther Seminary for many years. Um, as mentioned in, earlier in the episode, he wrote histories like as the biographies of Luther. And one thing that, um, and I like, I want to see what y'all think if, if, if you encountered this too, with listening to Nestigan and reading him. He seems to really, because um, a lot of like the historical discipline and a lot of like historians, um, especially when you get into like just modern historiography, they make history, I don't want to say abstract, but they don't, there's always in their presentation of it, there's all, you get the impression that you, we as the readers have to be mindful of the distance that we have from the people we're reading about or the distance we have from the events we're reading about and how like the, the contextual differences the cultural differences whatever right and um so there's always like this gulf between us and you know what we're reading about who we're reading about and i one thing i liked about nestingen is that he was very different he was he was the opposite of that um mm-hmm. He was such um, an accomplished, like, historian, scholar in his own right. But when he would talk about Luther, well, first off, I mean, you mentioned, like, the, the storytelling aspect of him. He talked about Luther, and you, you also talked about how he read Luther so intimately and, and connected with him and resonated with him a lot. When I hear, when I listen to Nessingen, um, especially in a lot of the, interviews and discussions the way he just like starts talking about luther it's like he it's almost like he's sitting right next to him and like knew him like he was a buddy of his mm-hmm. and he and but he's like so good with the story and the chronology like so well like he'll tell you yeah, and then 1531 him and katie lived here and she had this kid and and like he he knew how to like enter as a historian enter the world of I mean, like a snapshot of like you know uh, a period of Luther's life and his marriage from the latter part of 1531. I'm just throwing out an example. Like, yeah. you, you know, this 500 year old events and things, um, he was, he saw as, you know, accessible for us to be able to read about and to take in and digest and to be able to connect with these people that are separated us from a, a, a length of time, a, a half a millennium. And um, I just thought that was, I've always loved, like, the reason why I'm so attracted to history is because I want to be able to, you know, um, enter the world of people in the past like that, right? Because, yeah, while we may live in different times, uh, we have far more in common, I believe, with people from 
from different time periods more than we do differences because we all share humanity, right? Yeah. Um, that I was so impressed with, like that scene is just just his just grasping, not this mastery of like uh, knowing, like particularly with Luther, because that was just the ins and outs of his life and um, the way he talked about, you know, in one of the thinking fellows podcast episodes, he saw, he talks about the angst that Luther always felt and how, and he wasn't like doing like irresponsible psychologizing of Luther, but he really was saying like, you know, imagine living on the edge like this because of his circumstances. He's, he's declared an outlaw. Um, he had to look behind his back, you know, imagine the effect this has on you and your, you know, and so yeah. he was able just to get inside the, the, just the, just to really penetrate his subject matter as a historian that I think is so, it's so great when, when, when historic historians can do that. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I really yeah. enjoy, no, I, enjoy him as a historian a lot. You know. Yeah, I, I hear that. And I think that's actually, that's absolutely spot on. That's what, that's how I, I hear him too. Mm -hmm. um, I think that so much of that comes from the fact that he, he's very much in touch with humanity in general and what it is to be human. Mm -hmm. And he can see that back into Luther, right? That when you, when you are in touch with human nature, um, you just realize what it is to be a human and and those same things pertain to luther as they pertain to anybody and it helps you to read luther um in a very real down-to-earth way um as you said you're not over psychologizing him but just being honest i mean he's a human being um right so yeah I, it's immensely helpful the way that he approached luther yeah and i feel you know I feel like a lot of historians are, would not go, would not go to like would would not choose to go, you know, approach things in always in the same ways with as Nessingen does. But I also think there's just a lot of superficiality to um, the way we do a lot of things, including like doing history. That you know, it's look, it's okay to like speak of this person as he as if he's a human because he was and and you know we you know we we universally are you know uh prone to all this you know all the same things as you know we you know as other people so it's uh i really enjoy the way he just you know treats the people he writes about in his you know historical mm -hmm. so yeah um i don't know if i had oh i was gonna ask you what was your fondest memory of jim nessingen for for kyle wow that's probably a, it's a hard to narrow down or what <laughs> yeah it's hard to narrow it down i mean i've had so many good moments with jim mm -hmm. my, my fondest memory was probably um was probably the the first few days that I met him, I think I with mere Anglicanism was like a two or three day conference. And, um, and I might've been on the second day. Uh, my friend, Matt McCormick, his father was the rector of St. Phillips in Charleston, mm -hmm. the Reverend Hayden McCormick. And, um, 
And his father, Hayden, invited uh, me, my wife, my brother, who was with us at the time, and um, and Matt and his wife to come over and have dinner with um, with Jim and Steve Paulson. And um, and we got the, the good scotch out and we all sat around and uh, Jim just told stories, ministry stories. And um, and there was one thing about Jim that his wife actually included in his obituary. And that is that sometimes Jim's humor could turn a little bit um, off color. Yeah, and, well, uh, that's very believable. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And just just the stories he would tell and the, the sort of off color humor that Jim had and the things he was able to, to share about Luther at that dinner. That just made that a memorable night. It was just one of the one of the times that, that I like heaven, absolutely right? enjoyed. I mean, it literally sounds like heaven. I mean, yes, <laughs> and, uh, I'm very jealous that you have that experience because like me just like reading a little bit and listening to a little bit of him, you know, yeah. like, wow, I'd be great. That's like. You know, um, it's like living history almost. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But there were there were, of course, many others. I mean, there were so many good moments in class with him, and um, and many many stories that he told that uh, that will stick with me. But yeah, that stands out. I'll say. Yeah. Well, cool. Now I know. I just have more things to read now, and. A never ending list of things to read. So um there you go. And if you have access to a journal database, um he has quite a few journal articles in uh Lutheran Quarterly. Um he wrote largely wrote for Lutheran Quarterly and Word and World. Um so I would definitely recommend his articles. I think I think a project that needs to happen now for in light of, of you know, Jim's death, I think a project that needs to happen for um, the Lutheran Quarterly Book Series is that they need to pull all his articles together as one of the volumes of that series that publishes stuff by Ferdy and uh, Wenger and Paulson and those guys. Um, I think that would be a, a great honor to Jim if they did that and make him accessible to other people, his articles. Right. Yeah, I, uh, it's, yeah, it would be good to read that. I'd be interested in that. I will, I do have a database, so I will, uh, Atla, uh, access among a few other things. So I will, uh, definitely do that. Now that I said that, maybe I will, uh, reach out to Steve Paulson and ask him to do that because I know he's done that for, uh, Birdie. So maybe, yeah. I will. maybe it will happen. Mm -hmm. Awesome. All right. And uh, I guess um, I think we're pretty much wrapped up. I, I, it was a great discussion, guys. Um, our listeners will be having our next hymns episode. will be our next will be our next episode. And so we look forward to doing that and um, sharing <laughs> that. I think that's what number four. We still have a couple episodes to get through that. That kind of sub series we're doing. Uh, so yep. we'll, we'll hear from James and I again, as well as Stephen and Charlie for all together again for that. So, um, but yeah, thanks Kyle for coming on and, and coming on again and sharing, you know, sharing this stuff about a teacher and mentor of yours. And, um, you know, we'd love to have you on the podcast, uh, uh a third time, a fourth time, you know, more than sure. Thank you. I appreciate you being, being asked to be on and love to come back. 
All right. Happy New Year and uh, God bless.